Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 452. I hope you've had a delightful week, or if you're listening to this at the beginning of the week, I hope you're about to have an amazing week. Yes, I'm in that kind of super upbeat mood right now, so please deal with it. Um, I would like to say that uh, Nerdist News is a show that we've been doing for the past like six weeks over on the Nerdist channel at uh, youtube.com slash Nerdist with Jessica Chobot. Um, we absorbed a lot of really great G4 people uh, over on the Nerdist channel. It was sad to see G4 go. Um, although it still is kind of this weird zombie channel that is being powered by WebSoup. I think the only show they own outright. Um, but uh, but Jessica Chobot is hosting a sort of a bite-sized news show for us at the YouTube channel three days a week, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I'm hoping to expand it at some point to four or five days a week. Um, but she's doing a fantastic job. And people like Dan Casey drop by, and, they, and she has guests. And it really is like I've been calling it G4.1. So uh, go over and check out Nerdist News. Uh, follow them on Twitter at Nerdist News. And then uh, YouTube.com slash Nerdist. Um, that's it for that, and I, uh, we, I am so excited about the sponsor. I am so excited. I mean, of course, I'm always excited about the sponsors, but uh, but I'm particularly excited that um, we are uh, spo- we are being sponsored this episode by the new Coen Brothers movie Inside Lewin Davis. Um, the Coen Brothers sponsoring a podcast. When I was sitting and watching Raising Arizona 150 times in the 80s, um, if I ever thought that we would even have this much of a connection to the Coen Brothers, um, it's not like. Joel and Ethan called me and said, hey, can we put this on the podcast? I don't want to make it seem like that. But I'm just glad that we're uh, that I'm able to even say them in their name in any kind of official capacity. But Inside Lewin Davis uh, takes place in Greenwich Village, uh, sort of the folk music scene in 1961. It's been nominated for three Golden Globe Awards, including Best Motion Picture, Comedy or Musical. And, of course, it was written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, starring Oscar Isaac, Carrie Mulligan's in it, John Goodman, of course, Garrett Hedlund, uh, and then Justin Timberlake makes a little... Makes a little cameo on there as well, and I saw a clip from that, and it was actually pretty cool. So, Inside Lewin Davis, um, check it out, is is now playing in select cities, and I'd like to thank... I'm just going to go ahead and thank the Coen brothers. <laughs> Not for sponsoring this episode of the podcast, but just for... Just for... Oh, are you recording right now? Yes. The, why do you think I'm talking loudly into my phone? We're on a conference call. Yes, I am on a conference call with hundreds of thousands of people. It's just that they're not able to talk back. I mean, they can talk back. Oh, they'll talk back. <laughs> they'll talk back on the comment boards. <laughs> uh, but they, you know, you could talk back to your podcast if you're listening to it. Just say things back, and then just pretend that the rest of us are just talking so fast that you can't get a word in edgewise, but you're forgiving of us because um, you know we're hyperkinetic and we love you. Um, this episode of the podcast is Brendan Small, who I've known for so long, and I have loved watching 
him attain this incredibly successful thing that he's carved out. Um, he's one of the most talented people you will ever meet. I don't know if you know this or not, but many years ago, and we talk about this in the podcast, Mike Furman and a friend of ours, Lee Farber, and I, and Brendan, all made this thing called the Tron Rock Opera, which is a 12-minute rock opera about the movie Tron. And this was in 2003, before anyone gave a shit about Tron again. So, yeah, I'm going to be a little bit of a Tron hipster right now, is that we did it before it was cool. Well, actually, it was always cool to us. We just loved Tron and wanted to make a rock opera about it. Uh, so we'll talk about that in the, in the podcast. Um, but right now, Brennan has a somewhat new album out called uh, Galacticon, a high-stakes intergalactic extreme rock album. Um, and then also, of course, uh, you can go get the Metalocalypse album, Doomstar Requiem, uh, The Clock Opera. So go to brendonsmall.com, B-R-E-N-D-O-N-S-M-A-L-L.com, uh, and that'll give you links to that and just more stuff about Brendan, um, who's amazing. And he he brought his axe, body spray, and a guitar <laughs> to play music. So here we go, the Nerds Podcast number 452 with Brendan Small. Stick around until the end of the podcast for a special track from Doomstar Requiem. Now entering Nerdist.com. Making that left-handed, or are you just gonna? Because I mean, that's be easy to restring, but yeah, all you have to do is restring. Yeah, it. I mean, yeah. what else is there? That, I mean, I guess the, the knobs are up the no, yeah, the pot switches and stuff. Because I have a the way, right? yeah, What's I have a arm? casino I flipped to be yeah. like Paul McCartney. Well, you just switch your arms. It's harder than you think oh, to no. do that. <laughs> yeah, my thumbs would be on the wrong side. <laughs> now you're just making excuses. <laughs> I guess you don't want it that bad. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Brendan Small. Hi, how's it going? Hey, man. Thanks for joining us on Guitar Talk. Good, thanks. I'm good. Um, what's 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 going on? Um, oh, nothing. Just working. On. Yeah, doing a little work. Right? Right? You have you have to. Well, I just I just finished a whole bunch of stuff, so now I have like a free time. What do to, you do uh, with free time? What do I do? Uh, well, I'm doing. I still do music. Still, so I ended up getting roped into doing other music stuff that I uh, didn't foresee, but it's fun. I'm doing a ridiculous cover of. What does the fox say? Yeah. <laughs> With Scott Ian and Brian Posehn. <laughs> of course. That sounds Brian right. Brian singing? Yes, he is. <laughs> it's really, really fun. What does the fox say? Oh, and Corey from Slipknot is... Oh, uh, uh, yeah? Yeah. And it's, uh, it actually sounds really, really good. Nice. <laughs> and the worst thing about doing a cover of What Does the Fox Say is that you have that song stuck in your head. Even if you didn't do the cover, if you didn't do this cover, well, I had to listen to the whole song because I had to like build a whole beat map because I programmed all the drums for it, and I had never gotten past like when the yeah. when the guy makes like the old guy is doing the sounds. I never got to the end of the song, but the song is actually it's really well produced. 
You I've know? never heard it. All their stuff is really... Don't. You must have heard it. Don't yeah. hear it. I bet you have heard it. Don't. Because I didn't know I heard it until I realized that that's what was playing on Hits 1 on Sirius XM. That's a Bush song. This is a... But that's also the chorus of What Does a Fox Say? Oh, wow. Chris Isaacs. Oh, Wicked Game? Yeah. It sure is. What does the fox say? What does the fox do? You know, I, that's how I, that's, that's what I do in the morning, because I, I, the thing is, I've put myself in a position where I have to play a lot of guitar, and I have to play it well, and I have to play fast guitar, and I put my creator's show, or the, I mean, the guitar player really, really fast, so I got to keep up with that, so every morning I have the same routine, where I wake up like an hour or two before I have to be anywhere, and I, I drink coffee, and I play about like an hour, or an hour and 45 minutes of guitar, and try to learn all this, like, nerdy stuff that keeps your brain alive, because you'll... If you play guitar, you know, you plateau really yeah. quickly. Oh, you go, yeah. like, I know how to do this. And then you're like, and then you, the way your hands work, people forget this, but you don't always have it. You have it some days, and some days you don't. You're this big, your hands are these blobs, these amorphous, yeah. and you have to be in shape constantly. And if you're on the road, you're playing really well because you've got a guitar in your hand, you're playing a show, and, and the stakes are high, so you've got to really not miss notes or okay. screw up or any of that stuff. So, so I just try to keep my hands in shape every morning. What do you, what's your, what's your, what do you immediately start playing when you pick it up? Uh, let's see. There's three chords, yeah. Like part of a eruption, which I blow. We That was a much better joke. Stuff. But uh, that that wasn't even good. Eddie Van Halen yeah, would probably sneer at that. <laughs> but the guy, guitar players listening, like uh, know that I blew half of that. So, but it sounded like nobody knows. Nobody can tell. That's no, the great no. thing about guitar. <laughs> if it's distorted enough, yeah. no one can tell. It, well, yeah, it's true. Yeah. Is it so fun when it's like a like a chore sort of, or it's like I have to do this every day? You know what really sucks? I find is is recording rhythm guitars for metal songs. So that is. Just, it's all about the right hand, about getting your right hand. You have to just, not only do you have to record it once, you have to record it twice because, like in a Metallica song or something like that, it's not just one rhythm guitar you're hearing, it's two, and they're panned hard left and hard right. But James Hetfield is such a good rhythm guitar player that he, you know. You can't mess that up. So even that was like, it sounded okay, but if you have to strip that and play along with it with another guitar, then things start getting really I do. Um, you know, only when I play bar chords on yeah. an acoustic is when my hand really starts cramping up. But I know when I'm playing the best guitar I'm playing, it's when my hand is usually pretty yeah. warm and loose and I'm not pressing hard, you yeah. know? Yeah. And uh, it's like, you know, if you're playing tennis or jogging, you want to flex every muscle when you're running, you want to keep it loose and yeah. be able to kind of be in control. So, yeah. Well, I remember. I, let, let, let's go let's back, go back. A ways. Let's, let's go in the old let's time go machine. Back in the old yeah. rip, rip. Oh, can I have a rip, time machine? Rip cord or something? Yeah. Like, a, like um, just some time machine. Good time machine. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> 
good. Yeah, that's good. So uh, here we are in like 2003. <laughs> yeah, maybe around then, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was like 2003. Um, I, I first met you kind of just around the L.A. comedy scene. Sure, and, and I yeah. did not know at that time that you were a guitar player. I knew that you had done home movies. Right, yeah. And we, had, we were doing a lot of the same... Um, fun slash crappy shows around Los Angeles. Sure, I think I remember we would do the uh, the old uh, comedy Death Ray at the time. That was a fun show. That was a great show. What's that? Or still, was just the Tuesday night show at Embar. Yeah, it was just the Tuesday, which is one of the best shows, and that venue was one of the best venues, and those guys packed it really well, and it yeah. always had a, there was always a cool drop in. And I remember then there's the other ones like the Brew. What's the uh, Bruco? Yeah, the Bruco. Do they still do those shows? There? No, it just ra- it just ended. Really? This year, it yeah. just ended. I never got on. They never drew my name. <laughs> <laughs> you could go on now. You could probably go to it now. Do as much time as you want. Those are great shows. I remember doing stand up. Somebody said, "Hey, you got to come and do my show." It was around that era, and it was at the comedy store in the upstairs room, the belly room, the belly room. And he said, "You got to come. It's a great show. Just be there at like five thirty. Five thirty. That's early for comedy." And I went there, and um, and there were like 35 comics, and I maybe I was the last one there, or maybe they drew names, and I was the last person. But one by one, each comic, who is the audience, also the, you forget in comedy that the audience is you. You're the yeah. you and your your peers are the audience. So you're performing for your peers 90 percent of the time when you're working on stuff, and. And by the time each guy finished and they said, good night, and then they left and they'd go straight to their car. And by the time it got to me, I was the last one there, except for the host who was sitting there with his arms crossed with a big smile on his face. Yeah. Like, ladies and gentlemen, Brendan Small. And he like, yeah. ran back down. Yeah. Well, that, was and, the, that was always the first big jump when you, when you went from open mic comic to like, oh, you're starting to get on book shows. Right, yeah. And then some of the open mics would go, oh, you could drop in whenever you want. you go, oh, I've got a free yeah. pass. Yeah, it must be somebody. And then they would yeah. put you on last and call you the headliner, and then you realize, no, I'm just the guy going last. I'm the guy going last, no but there's nobody there. Yeah. I, but I remember I was like, this is, at some point, I don't know if this has happened to all you guys, but you just read, you reach a level of mania and lunacy where you're just like, what the, what the hell is going on? What am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing just in general with, who am I? Yeah. Like all those questions start going, and you have a microphone in your hand, there's one guy with his arms full in the back of the room. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to be that close to you because no, it's too intimate. No, no, no. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but I just did my act. I probably had the most fun I've ever had in my life, which uh, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but that was the... We'll was check the with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but that he, was, he laughed. That was the worst part. Did you, did, you, yeah. did you come out of the Chicago... You came out of the Chicago comedy scene? No, I was in Boston. So the I went, Boston. So I went to music school at Berkeley, Berkeley College of yeah. Music, and then right when I graduated, I got a job in retail, and I started doing comedy. <laughs> Where so I was. Where in Boston were you? I was at the the Hong Kong. So yeah. so Eugene Merman and I became friends during my last year uh, of music school, and he said, uh, "Do you need a do you do you do you want we need a roommate? Do you want to be our my roommate? Him and his buddy Matt." And I said, "Sure." And he was. Uh, I'd already seen him because I'd been in a sketch troupe and yeah. stuff. So. So we ended up doing a Friday night show together. He, myself, and Patrick Borelli, and who is now on uh, Fallon and stuff so the three of us had a show and we would just do these absurd characters and stand up and sketches and music things and all kinds of stuff like that so it was all Boston then when did where did uh, when did you pitch how did you get home movies on well I was on a show um it was at that same club. It's called the Hong Kong if you're in Boston ever. It's a really, really great room. It's always got the best Hello. energy in the world. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Rick Jenkins It was and, and still is the guy. So every time I'm in town, I, I go and just I want to go see a show or something. And he drags me on stage and I'm doing something. But, um, but uh, I was on a show. 
and Ron Lynch, who I'd seen come through town a few times, was on the show too. And I had this idea for this this character that I wanted to do, and I roped Ron Lynch into doing something with me. But Louis C.K., who I'd seen, he always came to this little club also. And um, and back then, before he was like super famous, he was the, still the funniest guy in stand-up. Yeah, like people could say, "Oh, yeah, he got really when he became a father. He really ch-. he was way funnier than everybody else in the world." And you laughed until your face hurt. <laughs> long before he had kids or like became uh, got married and divorced and all that stuff. But uh, so I was on a show with those two guys, and the guys from Doctor Cats were there too. And I kind of knew which table they were at, so I was doing this ridiculous character kind of to that table because I was like I think those guys are the guys because me and Eugene and were like I know Dr. Katz is done around here and we love the show and I know they book comics on that so we've been doing it for about eight months oh, why not wow. us you know and uh, and so I got a call from the now creator of uh, Bob's Burgers Lauren Bouchard and he was like in his 20s still back then and uh, and then we just like met up and and just started putting the show together and improvising, so they would just put me in front of a microphone, and they say, "You're, you know, be a character or something." And that was how the show developed. It's just recording, and recording and improvising, and, oh, and then wow. sort of backing the music into it. And then, I, well, yeah, I, I just uh, I had my guitar one day, and I just I just thought we should mess around with some stuff. There was like the second episode of the show, and I started doing like I think I just started playing like. <laughs> Like uh, we were just and we were messing around with rock and metal and stuff. So they were playing Ozzy, and I thought, well, there should be a character that plays it. So there was a character on the show that we kind of created, named Dwayne, because of just my love for guitar and stuff. And that was around the same time I didn't know what I was going to do with music after music school. So I kind of had my guitar in its case and it was collecting dust. So every once in a while I'd bring it out for like I'd write little miniature rock operas even back then at the at the comedy studio and. Uh, and I didn't know what I was going to do, so I figured, you know, someday I'll do something more than that. So I just play it. There's like a lot of guitar and sloppiness all over home movies and stuff, and kind of <laughs> indie kind of style. Because when I saw you, it was like it was like Captain Mustache. Yeah. And yeah. You remember the Captain? I Mustache? love Captain. Yeah. yeah. He's still around. Yeah, yeah. He's still around. He's still. Hey, one of those guys over there. You never know. Not very good guy though. Yeah. How what's going? Why would I try to watch a movie with the cell phone? They could keep checking the. Uh, try to put, put, turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea he was a uh, like a Boston comic that was supposed to be a guy that was going to hit but never did. He was a guy that actually in in this in this story of this character he was pretty big for a while but he never got out of Boston so he influenced all these people. But then like in the eighties, Lenny he, Clark. It was there was well there was a lot of well, no there was a lot of people that I got to see when I was starting out in the late nineties in Boston who were really funny comics, but I think they'd kind of been away from it for a while, and they were getting back up on stage. So there were, like, all the old favorites were there, and they're totally hilarious and make you laugh and can run a room like nobody's business. But some of them were kind of like they had been out for a while, and they'd kind of lost their mind on coke and, uh, you know, like, uh, on just booze, and this before everyone kind of recovered and everything. But uh, that was kind of my impression of that. Thing that was happening to people, and I, I love Boston. I love Boston comics, and uh, and then it's kind of also my impression of my father trying to tell a joke <laughs> 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 and just blowing it and just forgetting. So it. Dad going, was a big stand up in the eighties. <laughs> yeah. I think he may think he was. I always like to say that every once in a while when people are really funny. Go, you know what you should do? You should try stand up and see what it's really like bombing. <laughs> <laughs> 
My brother's really funny. Uh, you should try it. You should try it. You, give it a you, know, you should really try it. <laughs> Perform for one guy. Yeah. <laughs> night after Dylan, night. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, how, what is what is what is music school? Like and do you was it is it a good experience for a young musician to actually go to a focused? Uh, I think I program? think it's cool. I think it, it's it's what it, if you want to have some kind of a like. Luckily, I had a small understanding of what I wanted out of music school, which I think a lot of people don't like. Almost in any college, like they don't know what they want. But I knew that I wanted to get into the like. Um, I wanted to get into composition. I wanted to learn how to write music and be able to find it faster and be able to understand just to be able to label things quickly. So we all. Like, they're amazing musicians who don't read music and don't know theory or anything, but their ears are really well developed because they listen to great music their whole life, and they just can kind of identify things. They don't know the names of all that stuff that they're identifying, but they're, they're picking it out, and they'll sit behind a guitar long enough, and they'll come up with a beautiful melody or, you know, the stuff that they've learned in the past. Like, if they listen to Queen and stuff like that, that'll kind of turn up in their music because they've heard all these chords. And That's what Mike Furman's like. He never had formal training. But he's a great musician. But he can spot. Yeah. You know, like, he was the guy... Yeah, I think he sort of takes it for granted. Like, oh, yeah, most people just don't pick things up and then just start playing stuff they hear. Yeah, and he'll go, oh, yeah, I know, I think it's this. Here it he's is. Got he's got a great ear. The guy, he's got a gets super it. ear because he has yeah. no sense of smell. That's right. Oh, he has that's to right. make up for it by hearing things. He smells with his ears. Yeah, he smells. He smells with his music ears. with his ears. Ear yeah, his yep. ear smelling. Yeah, yep. but he is he is great, and I've I've always noticed that about him. And you you never did you study or no? Yeah, but you you're a natural musician too. Not really? Yeah, you are. Yeah, you got the voice. Yeah, you got a good voice. That's hard to do. You get the melodica. <laughs> the melodica. But you have, you know, I mean, but some people, it's, then you're lucky because if you're not trying that, but everyone, even like really great people have to try really hard and still make it good. But, um, but when I was in music school, I, I realized that um, the, all the composition classes and arranging classes I took would end up paying off at some point. And you end up kind of just having a favorite group of things that you like, you know. Like, if I have an old Queen song that I like, I try to figure out, oh, why do those chords sound like that? What are they mm-hmm. doing? So I'll go and try to analyze that. And then through music school anal- analysis, you kind of understand what they're doing, you know? That's right. I remember you and I went to a Halloween party one year in, like, I don't know. It might have been, like, 02, maybe, or 03, but it, we went to Padgett Brewster's house. Oh, yeah. And we were in the car, and, uh, and, we were, and you, had, um, you had Night at the Opera. Which is, yeah. And... Uh, and I had Night at the Opera, but I hadn't listened to it in a long time. And you're like, yeah. oh, and you're, and you're like, you just, we gotta listen to this. It's like, you parked the car, and then we just listened to Prophet Song. Yeah. And I, and I hadn't is, really, yeah. really listened to it, which is now, since then, has, beca- has become one of my all time favorite songs. And, you, and the whole time you're explaining, like, he just locked himself in the studio yeah. and then just, like, added yeah. all these. And I'd never, I just never had really paid attention to it yeah. before. But it's a that's one of the fucking shocking piece of music. It really is one of the best. People ask me, like, uh, even in the world of metal, because a lot of metal people sometimes they don't listen outside of metal. But the guys that do like listen, like even Metallica, they have this Ennio Morricone kind of background yeah. and all these different things, like film score and this grandiosity about them and this epicness about them. But uh, um, Brian May, like those guys were studied musicians who studied classical music and all that stuff. And then oh, he was also what. Astrophysicist or whatever, yeah. you, you know, all this stuff. He, but he he completely understood. That song is one of the most epic, big songs. It's about the end of the world too, which is always a good topic. And he he was, uh, I think there was, um, he talks about it in one of those, uh, um, you know, those uh, when they they take the record and they do they, the doc on the record. Yeah, do like, the documentary. It's on Netflix usually, like well, they're, classic they're album Netflix series. Now. That's what yeah, it is. Yeah. So they have like the Steely Dan version. and they have like all of the nerdy, and then they have the Queen one. So I bought that one, and, and Brian May talks about the Prophet song. And he said, I wanted to write a song for, like, 15-year-old boys to, like, because it's about 
basically Dungeons and Dragons and the end of the world and then cool guitars and this big crazy etude that happens in the middle with Freddie Mercury's vocal. It's fucking nuts, yeah. especially when you think about how people rec- had to record music. That way, it was archaic. They had to like they had tape, and that was it. And if and they had to bounce like eight guitars on one thing. And if you screw that up, you have to start, start over. over again. <laughs> you know, and they would have to run the tape around the room because they were, and then put a flange on. I know they put like headphones in a coffee can to get that old timey sound wow. on like Good Company. That song with uh, you know, anyway, they did so much cool stuff. Uh, Roy Thomas Baker, that's the producer. Just a lunatic madman who just made that album work. That thing holds up like crazy. And yet, so we listened to that song, and then, yeah. and then I was just, ad- and then I was addicted to that song. Yeah, for months. Yeah, it's a great one. A lot of people don't know about that because everyone knows Bohemian Rhapsody, off of uh, off Night at, Night at the Opera, and like you're my best friend and stuff like that. But not everyone knows about um, the Prophet song. I did. I covered that song with uh, the School of Rock kids one time. Oh shit! And so I had like three guitarists, and we learned all those all the the whole thing and they had like six vocalists and then we did rounds so oh, wow. um the earth will shake yeah death all around 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 so we had that all the way and that was pretty crazy but it, it ended up working it was that's really cool awesome. that's really cool sometimes uh, that's all you want to do is just start a cover band and play your favorite songs that never existed oh yeah I, every day I, yeah. I, 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 there's so many songs yeah. I'm like oh, I just want to cover that in a weird I just want to cover that weird you have covered crazy songs we have covered way. crazy songs yeah so when, when, when you and I first started talking it was uh, I remember it was at El Cid and Furman and I, we were doing hard and firm stuff, and then right, and we did a, you know, we did whatever it was that we were doing at the time, and then you came up afterwards, and you were like, "Hey, I don't know if you, I knew you was a comic, I didn't know right, you yeah. was a musician." And you're right. like, "Look, I, you know, I'm a guitar player, yeah. and you know, I have a little home studio thing, and yeah. you know, if you guys ever want right. to come do something, it'd right. be really fun." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was so long ago that I remember I brought like a 12 pack of beer to your house. That's how long ago it was, <laughs> um, and I probably drank all of it, but. Um, I don't remember that part, but I do. I do remember you guys showing up. You yeah. drank it really fast. Yeah, you were you were, yeah. you were living in Silver Lake. I was living so. in Los Feliz. I remember. Yeah. Oh, on Rodney. Right. Yeah. yeah. It was yeah on Rodney. Right yeah. up the street from Wacko. Right up the street from Wacko. Yeah. And uh, and so you said you said the magic words to us, which was always wanted to do a rock opera about Tron. Yeah. Now, my <laughs> yeah yes. my history with that movie. I, like we instantly bonded. You mean yeah, the yeah. magic words to yeah. close a vagina? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Go on. No, 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 no. You have to get your information disc and then break the wall down so that you can bury the information disc right at the case if you want to get into the uh, master control Dental pussy. Disc. <laughs> oh, nice. So um, the because uh, Mike and I were huge fans of Tron, and I'd yeah. always been a huge fan of Tron, and. At that time, no one else was really a huge fan of Tron. Like it hadn't it resurged. Was pre, it was pre, yeah. The, yeah, like we're ahead of t- we were it, ahead of the time. It was so because <laughs> Disney had considered that movie a complete failure, and right. even on the DVD of Tron, they get stuff about the movie wrong. Like they say, oh, and you know Flynn's quest to take down the master control panel oh, it was right. not the master, it was the master control program. Anyway, you should know that if you're the, fucking putting out the DVD. The tra- well, they had the old trailers. I remember, I think, the first time I saw and I, I Go and check this out. I, maybe someone else can call in. I know this is not a live, but at some point after this is aired. Just call, Chris. But I think I saw a trailer, and the voiceover said, In a world. <laughs> I swear to God. <laughs> I swear to God. 
in a world. Oh, I know. <laughs> Computers? <laughs> it was like this old vaudevillian. Yeah. You want to get sucked in? Yeah. They got blue. So we, they got yeah. red. Yeah. They so got every color. Ultimately, ultimately, what we all did was to write a 12-minute rock opera about Tron. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> which we never recorded. Yeah. Oh, we started... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it really is all the movements of Tron. Yeah. And there's like six different pieces of music oh, man, in it. It's yeah. like, or you started, a, you started, you're, you're the first vocal. It's like, yeah. I am a scientist. So strong. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. And then it's all about breaking down the orange. Si- our warehouse size hard drive hold 16k there's all these oh, dumb yeah. computers <laughs> and then it just basically it goes good. through all the movements of Tron we and should, it, wow. we should record that and, it, yeah. and I would love to because we did it was you and me and Furman and then our friend Lee Farber who wrote oh, for right. the soup right. who played drums and um, so we got the song down and we started performing it around town which is a very big Undertaking because most comedy shows are just basically one microphone and a yes. PA, yeah, and that's it. And it was yeah. before any theater spaces were doing. Yeah, it was like shows. fake gallery and M bar and, yeah. and places like that. So we would come in with this whole band setup, yeah, drums and everything. We had a projector, yeah. M bar once. Well, we we brought yeah we brought yeah. a fucking CRT television. I'm not gonna set. lie, I would be so oh, bad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I would be so mad as another performer. Yeah. Oh, is it? Oh, well, yeah. The original, wasn't like an open the, mic, right? the original the original stage at M bar two was very small, so it was yeah. like we were all crammed. And so we we basically cut um, a version of the movie into right, thirteen minutes right. to play along, so because people couldn't really. Why don't we? Why don't you guys, why don't you guys record it and then we'll just animate it? We could do that for you our channel, do, for our YouTube you channel. We should totally yeah. make it. But um, it was so much fun, and we never got a good recording of yeah. it. And uh, and then we did it like six times, and Furman and I were like. Oh my God, we're gonna we're gonna tour those all over the world. And Brendan, because uh, he's a music prodigy, was like, oh, I'm gonna go. I think I want to do something else. Like he like he did. You did it. Like we did it like six times, and you're like, we got it. Oh yeah, yeah. We should we should though record it. I would though. love to. I think shortly thereafter, I started getting into Metalocalypse. I think I sold the show, and I think I just kind of disappeared into a studio for seven years, which is what I <laughs> have been doing. Yeah. Well, I remember uh, speaking of you know when he lived down the street from Wacko. Yeah. I ran into Brendan at Wacko, and he had a, just a stack of uh, heavy metal books. Oh, that's like, right. Uh, like yeah, I had like, I think I had just maybe I got the 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 church burning one, the Norwegian. Um, Lords of Chaos. I yeah, think I needed yeah. to just kind of check out everything that was just... Because, um, you know, this, my whole relationship with metal is I grew up listening to it. And when you play guitar in suburbia, you pr- you're going to cross paths with metal. You're going to... Then 
that was like the first thing I ever learned. I, I hadn't bet even heard so the many song. kids today think that that song is made for Iron Man, the movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they think it's yeah. But um, that was, but I, that was the first thing drums. I learned was just that power chord shape. <laughs> But I don't know why, but Furman and I always used to sing lyrics to that song. We'd go, Nobody likes me. <laughs> <laughs> But but that's the thing is you learn all you learn the well you learn metal and then I learned then I was very quickly I I I grew up on like Andrew Lloyd Webber and all that stuff around my house too so Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita were always playing and then I listened to King Diamond and I there was a very short distance between Andrew Lloyd Webber and King Diamond it's just the guitars were louder and there were double kicks and he was doing a thousand voices. And he was telling stories, though, with his music. So King Diamond is from Denmark, and he's this. Uh, he had a band called Merciful Fate first. And uh, metalheads just go insane for him whenever you... And we got him to do voices on Metal Oculus, too. Oh, no too. way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> I called him. I called him at home. I think I maybe told you this story <laughs> on your podcast. So King Diamond is like this Danish evil, the Prince of Darkness from Denmark. And, and I got his number through, like... Metallica's management or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, they gave it to me, and I said, Hey, I- I've got to get in touch with King Diamond. I think he'd be great as a voiceover guy. I mean, we're, you know, this whole show is about honoring metal and all that stuff. And I think he'd be the perfect voiceover guy because he can do like a million different voices. And, uh, I said, okay, here's the number. And I said, well, what do you what do you call him when you you don't call him King Diamond? Like, is I mean, he's not really a king, is he? <laughs> <laughs> he's the King of Diamonds. The King of Diamonds. Um, <laughs> No, he's just like, he plays cards. That's why. That's yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, she said, I don't know. I don't know what to call him. So, uh, so I, I got his number, and his, uh, he like lives in Texas or something. Jesus. And I was like, King Diamond in Texas? That doesn't make any sense. And I called, and I just called him, remember it ringing, and I hear someone say, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, is, is King Diamond there? <laughs> yes, one moment. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, this is King Diamond. How you doing? <laughs> and it was like, yeah, this is the friendliest, nicest guy in the world. I mean, you realize all these people in comedy and music are all a bunch of silly carnival barkers trying to lure someone over. Check this out. You know, it's a person with the beard or whatever it is, you know. But, uh, but he was super cool. And so, that, so that's it, the, the, the thing is, and that's what kind of led me to the project that, that I just did with Metalocalypse was all that stuff from rock opera stuff to storytelling stuff to the metal stuff so I got into all this metal stuff and, I, and then in music school you get all confused about what you like because you start taking country guitar labs and all kinds of like <laughs> crazy shit where you're like doing all you know, like a uh... I had a brief flirtation with rockabilly <laughs> she's like the Chet Atkins style yeah. so you take all these different kind of labs and you're trying to figure out Any metal songs translate over to country, or do, are the riffs just too different? Well, Chet Atkins, Mr. Sandman's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chet Atkins is pretty good. But, um, yeah. You know what? They're flat-picking stuff. They're, like, super, like, crazy. Yeah, they have really flat-pickers back in the old, like, uh... 
was the when you were going to Berkeley was the was that Daddy Junkie music? Yeah, there's there on Mass Ave. There's an old yeah, there's a, a place kind of like the Guitar Center before Guitar Center owned everything. There was a place called Daddy Daddy's Junkie Music. Right well, across the Guitar Center took it over. Uh, yeah, and uh, I love still when I go to Boston, like I'll be there this weekend. I will go into that store and just listen to the kids coming in. Like oh yeah, yeah, and like because they'll always be like. They'll always be looking for whatever guitar is of the style they're trying to like. They're like, "Oh, we're doing flat picking, and I need a, I need a Telecaster." Like it's right, always. Yeah. And you'll I really you'll hear the same. Sh- the thing is, like time, time is frozen inside of that place. It's mm-hmm. still where every single guitar riff kind of goes to live. Like. All those riffs that never die. <laughs> yeah, all that stuff. Were you a Jerry Reed fan at all? Uh, you know, I, I knew his guitar playing, and he was a great guitar player, but uh, I didn't go deep into his world, but he's awesome. It's pretty. And yeah. then um, Lindsey Buckingham is a guy that I. I've he's great. Been. And Lindsey Buckingham is. Like, I play like him because he plays. I mean, he. With a pick, you know, it's pretty amazing. Jeff Beck's the same way. Jeff Beck's. Can you do classical guitar at all, or is that a whole different discipline? It's, it's a different. Doesn't sound that great on this. Could you take down Ralph Macchio? I want him to take down Ralph Macchio at the crossroads. <laughs> oh, that one. Oh, I don't think I could do that right now. I think it's <laughs> Satriani. I was yeah. in Satriani there. Summer song, one of my favorite songs of all time. But that's something about Metalocalypse, too, is I got in touch with all my guitar heroes. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them. So Satriani and Steve Vai came and did voices, and Billy Gibbons came and did voices. Oh, that's and awesome. They're all great, and you know, every the guys from the world of the metal, from from like Cannibal Corpse to Metallica to they all love comedy. They're all comedy. You probably have learned this as you've met tons. Oh of yeah, mus- musicians always. There, there's all, there's definitely this sort of symbiotic like. Yeah. We as comics want to be rock stars, and rock stars yeah. want to be funny. Like yeah. there's this sort of like. There is this sort of mutual, like, oh, that's all. How do you do that? Yeah. And they're going, oh, yeah. fuck, how do you We're do that? We're living each other's dreams. I know, <laughs> I know, but a comic, like, you know, when you when you just have a microphone on stage and everything's working, you're in complete control, that's where a musician goes, I gotta drag a drum kit around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. kind of reaction everywhere. I mean, they're pretty much the same, except in comedy, there's less money and sex. Yeah, I don't know. Music's taking a big nosedive, guys. <laughs> <laughs> or the sex. Still sex, not the money. Yeah. No, you'll get. You can. You can. You realize there's a, someone with low enough self-esteem to have sex with you out there. Oh, Everyone, every venue. Us. Yeah. Abel, yeah. America. Yeah. Yeah. If you want even less self-esteem, they'll fuck a comedian. Yeah. There's that. Um, <laughs> there's that. Uh, the, on when the Fleetwood Mac when Fleetwood Mac did the reunion in '97 and they did the yeah. da- the dance and Lindsey Buckingham comes out and plays Big Love by himself. Right. And he's fucking. It's like the t- like there's three bottom fingers are picking, but then with his thumb he's playing yeah, the I bass at the same that. time. Yeah. Where it's almost like classical rock thing at the same time. That's the thing about guitars. You know, everyone's pretty much everyone at this table has a guitar somewhere. Yeah, 
but to sound like to play like four or five notes and to know who the guitarist is yeah, is how amazing. Does it, like how, Lindsey Buckingham has his own voice on the instrument. Plus, he's a great songwriter. He has a great singing voice and all that stuff. And Fleetwood Mac's amazing. It wouldn't be the same without him. But yeah, how how does a person develop a style? On, how do you on, develop your? Because I, I was you know with a comedy voice at least like oh you use your words, but with a with a guitar you know I guess. Yeah, when you're a com- comedian, there's like no one in competition. When, you know, there's no one really in competition with what you're doing when you're doing a personal story on stage. No one did that. Just you. So no one can be on guitar. Everyone can, everyone can grab. But I notice it's with vibrato. So. Like getting that right vibrato to make it sound like Angus Young, getting that faster kind of a thing that he does, or you know, that's that doesn't sound like Brian May really because he he actually. That vibrato is totally wrong, but I'm I'm trying my best to make so it sound like it, but it's not working. Well, you're, using tone, yeah. you're using tone, and then like whatever sort of pedals they have, and then it's and then that. I, but you know, it's really funny. It took me like 20 years of guitar playing to realize that you, a good guitar plugged into a good amp is what everyone's got, and everything else is your fault. It's like this guy or this guy <laughs> not talking to each other, you know. Everything else is your fault. You have to like make that sad realization because guitar players, we buy into that idea that there's a piece of gear out there that's going to make you sound uh, good. Pedal chasers. <laughs> but yeah, and that's what you. I mean, but what else are you going to do? Yeah, you know, you want to. Like, oh, you're you talking want, to the right what guy. What am I going to like? Who doesn't go on eBay and fantasize about stupid crap they want to like? My girlfriend's looking at shoes while I'm looking at like pedals and boutique nerdy amps. Or yeah, like, oh, it's my speaker cone. No, it's this. But <laughs> Jeff Beck plays out of a little tiny like tweed amp for you know eight thousand people yeah. and just makes the thing sing and he doesn't even have a pick or anything he's got a guitar cable that's his only extra thing I remember when you were developing it was right around the same time you probably ran into Jonah at the at Wacko with all the books but you know at at the time you would also go uh, oh you'd say like have you ever heard Cannibal Corpse like I want to do something like that yeah but it's like but you can't understand any of the words yeah yeah and 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 then you went and fucking (laughs) (laughs) which is it mind bendy at all that you know that uh, in that genre of music, which you were essentially paying homage to, and, yeah. and in some sense is satirizing. It's like sure. now you're the like your album that uh, you have the most successful selling. Oh yeah, the, it was like the highest charting. I think was the thing is we char- we charted higher than any other metal or extreme metal death metal. I think in that sh- in that specific genre, <laughs> we're the number one <laughs> death metal cartoon band of all time. <laughs> no one can take that away. Not one other death metal cartoon. No, there's not one other one. Well, there's one. But they sold like one less record than us. <laughs> it's the Chipmunks. The you, I realized, yeah. If you if you um, if you uh, make your category so specific, no one can ever compete with that either. Well, that's yeah. true. But but people do. But you do. But like, people do. Like no, for some reason. Well, here's the thing: is you know we were messing around with music, and I was kind of getting back into the idea of being a guitar player, kind of for in addition to being a comedy writer and a showrunner and all that stuff. But I wanted to. Um, when I had an opportunity to put the first record out, I thought, how many opportunities am I going to get? This should sound good. The music should be something you'd actually... In addition to the, this silly world that we've created, 
it should be something that you'd want to actually hear. You know, you want to get to the end. How many songs have you listened to? You're like, I don't need to hear that. where that goes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need to hear that. I get the idea. It's music. The guy's playing drums and you're singing some crappy melody. I don't, and who cares about any of that stuff? So the idea is how do you make it, how do you want to, how do you put something in your CD player that you don't want to take out? Like, what is that? You know, what, and how do you get to that, that to writing music that makes you want to leave a CD in your CD player. Well, especially with comedy, and it's yeah. sort of the... Um, and that's, that's ancient talk CD player, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. it, but, but the idea the flash of, drive, yeah. The idea of finding the thing that ultimately that you do, like the thing that sort of puts your stamp on the world, is, you know, kind of asking yourself, like, what are, what are all the things that I like to do? And, I and, know, yeah. You know, and, and taking other disciplines and mashing them together to create something that no one's really seen yeah. before. I mean, like... You know, one of the big things, like when Tenacious D first came around, was comedy. Comedy bands up to that point were, you know, um, there's a bathroom on the right. You know, it was yeah, just yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. and there yeah. wasn't really. Yeah, it wasn't music that, like you said, that you'd want to listen to. But right. then, oh my God, they can fucking he can sing. He can sing and like they sound crazy. Amazing. Yeah. And their their music is their music writing is outstanding. Yeah. It's really strong. And those guys are great musicians. Like, and then it's funny two, on top of yeah. that. But they're also these guys that have the power of like a thousand people that are plugged in with these two acoustic guitars. It's just amazing. They're just they have so much. Jack Black's voice is great. Yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, I think I was. That's what I was wondering because you know you do see guys with acoustic guitars doing parody stuff on stage every once in a while. Or at least I saw that when I was starting out, and I thought this is really making me laugh, and it's actually really funny. But I don't want to do that. I want to do something else, and it's going to be. I think it's going to involve me plugging this thing in, and that's going to be part of the difference. So. That's where Metalocalypse also came from. Plus, the other thing you were saying is finding something that you like and you're, and you're kind of interested in. It's really stupid because I was just talking about Cannibal Corpse and talking about metal and like all these Norwegian and all these uh, black metal bands and stuff. And I had, and I was in the middle. I think I'd sold a show to the Sci-Fi Network, like an animated thing. And uh, I was just complaining about like how long it's taken and just all kinds of crap. And my buddy from the Venture Brothers, Chris McCulloch, said, I don't understand, you're sitting here, you're complaining about this show, that sounds like it's funny and it's probably going to work, but, but all you, you realize, I don't know if you realize this, but all you're, saying, all you're talking about is Cannibal Corpse. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you make a show about that? And I was like, I can't believe, I, I stood there and just like, was like, I can't believe you had to tell me that. <laughs> well, I, and those, that's exactly what I said. I was like, I just had no idea that, but that's, the that thing. that's what I've been talking about the whole time. That's the thing is that um, sometimes you don't have the right perspective on stuff. And when you, when you think about work, I think it's a function of the generation that we grew up in where our parents' our parents' generation was sort of like, well, work is this, and it's a thing that you do that you have right, to do, and, right. and play is your own hobby, and you right. keep that separate. Yeah. And because for me, it was the same thing when I, when I started all the nerd stuff. I was like, sure. oh, wait a minute. What if I actually worked on stuff that I cared about? Right, you know? yeah. And, and, and yeah. it does sound like a... Well, of course, that's so simple. Why wouldn't you do that? But it really doesn't occur to you at yeah. first because the things you like are so close to your heart that you yeah. don't think, oh, that should be my job. You just right, yeah. yeah. I just didn't intuitively think that. You, I, you know, it takes like – yeah, so what got you to that? How did you get to that place? Is just, just you just woke kicked in the face by the business for 15 yeah. years or, or, four, go, or 12 yeah. or 13 sure. years, whatever it was. The came on January 9th, 2010. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, really? Was, it, re- it really was just – it was just time and time again of like – oh, man, I lost another job or this thing didn't get picked up. And I didn't really care that much about it to begin with, but I still feel bad about it. And, yeah. and I think just kind of going, I think I just want to take ownership over it. And I only want to work on stuff I care about, at least that way. Right. Even if I can just scrape by, sure. at least I will be happy because I'm doing stuff that I care about. That's great. Yeah. That's a tough one to, uh, that's a tough one to, to figure out. 
that thing that you're like, what do I, what do I, what am I interested in saying? Most or, people don't know. Most people. Don't, and it's hard to do. You have to keep talking until you say it. Well, most people don't even know what they want to say, nor do they know what they want. Like if right. you said, what do you want? People go, I don't know, more yeah. of something. When you were introducing the uh, Metalocalypse uh, rock opera at oh, the Vista, premiere, yeah. the premiere yeah. um, you, uh, you started talking about, like you started with telling a story about sitting around with uh, Eugene Oh and, yeah, and, and that's it. Kind of is the same conversation. Yeah. yeah. So what? So I went and um, I just because we'd all worked so hard and putting an animated show together. It's just tons of hours of just waiting for renders to finish, and and everyone's working really hard. And they don't have. They can really go home if they want to. They don't have to put the extra hours in. But they all started really, particularly on this project, really started giving a shit even more. Like all the compositors and animators and people were just like, I'm sticking around just in case you need me. I'm going to be eating pizza in the back, but if something fucks up, you come and get me. And you're like, you're allowed to go home. You're not getting paid for this. We ran out of money a long time ago. And, um, but they all really cared, and it was really nice, too. And then they all just, like, they were all so good. The team had gelled so well this, this, for this particular project that I wanted to say something nice to them up top. And I, I think um, we're also the, the, doing a one-hour rock opera animated special was something I hadn't seen before. And it reminded me of back when I had started out, just started getting on, on stage with Eugene and doing a comedy night with him. And I remember us walking to or from the venue to our house that we lived in, and we just saw all these comics, and we just thought, we're lucky enough to get stage time kind of whenever we want it. And the question for us is, what are we doing? What are we doing now that we have the microphone in our face? What are we saying? And I see so many people where I can guess the punchline of the joke before it happens, or it's a thing or it's another thing but it may not be for me I was like I don't know if it's going to be stand up or it's going to be it's going to be something creative and this is like pre-home movies but I thought as, and we just kind of made this pact that like, as long as we do something we should make sure it's not something else so it should be the thing doing like what are you going to do when you get there do something different right doesn't matter what it is just do something different right and you may end up starting a business that no one else can start because you're the only you out there you know so then you know. Then I said, "Hey, tonight we're going to do something I hadn't seen before, which is a one-hour rock opera with the fifty-piece orchestra <laughs> and uh, the lead singer from Cannibal Corpse <laughs> singing with me, and then Malcolm McDowell and Mark Hamill singing also, and Jack Black singing, and uh, great vocalists and musicians all around, and just putting this thing into a big crazy thing that that actually went back to everything that I'd grown up on, from Tommy to Jesus uh, Christ Superstar to." Uh, the metal stuff to King Diamond to all that stuff all kind of wrapped into one little thing so yeah it was great does it ever it's, freak you out at all doing all that stuff well it just freak you out in the sense of like I got to do everything I wanted to do yeah yeah you know what um, it's, it's funny because I think I created a job for myself that's kind of the ultimate job for me but there's don't, don't worry you'll always be dissatisfied and want something else <laughs> I knew it yeah don't worry that's always there guys what am I going to do if I fulfill all my dreams and then I, I should I should ostensibly be happy yeah what are you going to do right but don't worry that doesn't happen oh, good. <laughs> yeah. it's not just a hole it's an endless created. pit right? yeah well it's funny because I, I was doing tons of comedy when I started out I was still doing the Tomorrow Show with Ron Lynch and Craig Anton every weekend and um and I was uh, I was doing tons and tons of stand up. Then I then I started doing the the records and the touring. So I just all my time went away. But now, like over the last year, I've been going out and doing stand up again. And uh, it's really funny how slack those muscles can get 
if you're not if you're not up on stage every night, I bombed like so hard. <laughs> I went and did a show in Brooklyn, and it was just so uncomfortable and long, and I was and uh and uh it was it was amazing. It was such a long trip home back from that thing, and I was like, right, <laughs> right. And then I was like, well, that's not why I didn't. I think the last big comedy show I'd done before it was like a forty minute set where I improvised half of it, and was like, oh, here I am, I can do whatever I want. And, but then like all then later on I went back and I just sucked terribly. Well, you know what happens is that when you it, it's you know as a comic one of the greatest things that can happen is that people come see you on purpose. And, right. then, and then all of a sudden you're performing for your tribe. Right. Which is great. Right. But what happens is yeah. you get a little spoiled. Yeah. So then when you go guest on someone else's show sure. where people didn't come to see you, right. that's where it's like, oh, right, I have to be a comic. I can't just be me. Right. And people aren't just going to accept yeah. that because they don't know and they don't give a shit. That's, you have to like show up. You have to be <laughs> confident and have materials but ready to go. But it's good to have and, those experiences. But that was, no, it was so good. It was, it was uh, I, and I remembered every single thing I'd ever done in my life has always been uh, prefixed with a major failure and an embarrassment at the top. Like my first real guitar playing in front of people, I, I was 15 years old and I'd, I was in a guitar competition that my my stupid friend talked me into because I think he talked me into it because I was just a little bit worse than him, so there's no way he could come in last place. <laughs> but I sucked so horribly that night. It was like a three to five minute piece, and my I was so nervous. My hands didn't work, and then it was just terrible. I was just I remember my sister was in the audience and with her cheerleader friends, and I was sitting there just really like not for the, for first, the cheerleaders. And not so in it front was of you. It was like when Marty McFly's hands started disappearing. It was, it was like that, but my hands were there, so I didn't have an excuse. <laughs> if I were Marty McFly, I can't play guitar, and my hands are disappearing. You didn't have the excuse like the space-time continuum because yeah. his father's going to meet the wrong woman. Exactly. I didn't have that excuse going for me. But I went home, and I remember just like I had like this moment with my guitar, which was humiliating myself. After, you know, in school, people go, what are you doing on the weekends? I go, I play guitar. I go, oh, Really? Yeah, and I would play it for you right now, but there's no guitar. <laughs> so you're going to have to take my word for it. Then everyone finally came and saw me play guitar, and I was uh, the worst guitarist in the world. So what do you do on the weekend? Yeah. Mm, nice <laughs> guitar playing. It was terrible. Like, from anybody's point of view, it was like, that is some bad guitar playing. And I remember I flipped open my case, and I looked at my guitar, and I looked at my hands, and I thought, what happened out there, guys? <laughs> this, this, we, can't, we can't experience this again. <laughs> This is bad, you know. This is really, really. I, I don't think it's gotten this bad before. This is about the worst it's ever been. We've been together for fifteen years, guys. I know. I know. But, but yeah, and I was just like, you between you and me, and then like I didn't, I didn't factor in that the playing in front of people was gonna rack my nerves and cause lactic acid to build up and <laughs> seize my joints or whatever it was. But uh, but I uh, I remember thinking like, you know, well, the two weeks that I practiced before this were the two weeks I've ever the hardest practicing I'd ever done. I woke up at like four in the morning. I practiced before school. I stayed up. I got like two hours of sleep for two weeks, but something happened where I noticed some major improvement where I was concentrating on the instrument in a different way where like I have no choice but to correct this mistake. I have no choice, but the nerves got me. So I could have probably played in my bedroom with nobody watching a lot better, but in front of those people, I sucked. And so I made a deal with myself that like uh, if I can keep up this practice regimen and I'm not a thousand times better by this time next year, then I'll quit. So that was like the thing, and and like because of embarrassments, because of bombing, because of all that stuff, that's the only way that I get good, and that's why you know it's funny. I've written all these songs and records and all that stuff, but the only reason I do it is because 
If I don't, I look like a real jerk. <laughs> <laughs> well, that because I said I was gonna. That yeah. also, like, being accountable to people is yeah. good. And then, yeah. And then on top of that, it's uh, you know, everyone will bomb. But it's then, like, what do you do with that? And some, yeah. people, some people would have taken that guitar case and been like, yeah. that's the end of you. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was fun. Yep. <laughs> Good riddance. Yeah. yeah, but it's that bombing, I think, I think that sets things in motion. And also, the truth is that nobody really gives a shit. <laughs> you can bomb and make the whole room feel uncomfortable and they'll kind of avert their eyes as they walk out and they see you there. Hi, thanks for coming. Yeah. And you've, like, made everyone feel weird. As they're exiting, but is that how you get them back? That's how I got them back, guys. Listen, I you know I realized I was kind of weird if I said, but um, but you know, a year or two from then, you know, no one's or even less than that, no one's gonna really care unless you really like implode on stage or something like that. Well, I also find that you you can also bomb gracefully, yeah. So that even if people aren't laughing or they don't get what you're doing, if you don't freak out, yeah, then they're fine with it. Like you, yeah. and, and you know. It, you know, they're not going to say you were the funniest comic. You were right. But you yeah. could still you could still leave the stage and be likable just by right. like, ah, you know, I thought this would work and it didn't, but uh, all right, you know, yeah. whatever. And, and then if you're fine with it, then they will have a natural inclination to be like, oh, I guess it's okay. Like what totally, they're what they're yeah. feeling is the sort of dissonance between they're 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 feeling your internal dissonance when you freak out when you bomb. Absolutely. And, and it reminds them. Of that they hate feeling that way, right? Yeah, yeah. They go yeah, from a they yeah. go from a, a crowd full of people that are being led down this journey to yeah. a bunch of people who are have a mirror in front of them, like, oh, this is like that nightmare I always have, yeah, yeah, and you're yeah. making them feel it. Absolutely. So if yeah. you don't if you don't freak out about it, they I know, freak yeah, about it, even if they're not laughing. Yeah, I, I remember learning that. I remember uh, asking somebody when I first started out in comedy. It's so strange in comedy. That was the big, the biggest difference between music and comedy that I learned was that you can be, you can throw a rock and hit four hundred guitar players who are not going to ever work in their life. <laughs> you start doing comedy, and people from the networks come out immediately, and you have to not, you have to avoid them to not be seen too early. I remember people from <laughs> yeah. Fox were coming out to the comedy studio, and um, and I remember I was like, I'm not going to perform. That's a Fox rep, and I'm just starting out, and I suck. I mean, I I know I've been up there. <laughs> I hear what's not happening, you know. Um, and I, I remember asking her at the time, I said, well, I'm sure you get this question all the time, but what are you looking for when you see a comic? And she goes, at this point, I'm looking for someone who can bomb comfortably. Oh, wow. You know? Wow. And that was it. And, I, and then I remembered also my buddy, Bill Broadus, who wrote with me on Home Movies, is also a writer on Dr. Katz. He had a great story about the audience not being with him and getting on Letterman as a comic. Because he went to do a show, and basically the audience, the camera only sees the performer. They don't have, like, a crane sweeping over the audience and all that stuff when you're just, like, at some club taping for a show. And so he knew that they were taping that night, and he just said, I'm going to fuck this shit. There's nobody here. No one's laughing at anything. I'm up next. I'm going to act like I'm doing really well. And he did. He acted like he did really well. And he's, you know, and just like sat back there after this, like paused, like where the <laughs> big moments would be, and swaggered and really enjoyed every moment. But he had that confidence, and then he got booked. Wow. Holy shit. But he said it's, it was because he pretended that he was doing well, you know? Wow. And I remember that stage fright that I had back then would follow me to, you know, stand up and all that stuff. You have to really confront it. And, um, I remember watching people, and I thought, I, okay, I'm not relaxed on stage. I can't think clearly. But I see people that do, so how, do they, how does a relaxed person stand? 
So if you start faking this relaxed thing, you put the audience in the mood of relaxation, even though on the inside you're like jittery or weird or whatever it is in those early days of stand-up. So I remember just going, oh, I see this guy. He looks like the most relaxed comic on stage. What is he doing with his arm? Now, okay, he's walking over. I just remember watching all that stuff. Yeah. and just trying So they're, to... getting ver- they're getting visual cues. But the other thing that, yeah. that, that that does is that you can sort of reverse engineer your body where usually you sort of, I think people assume that their emotions drive their, um, uh, their body language. Right. But if you do, like you're saying, if you, you assu- start if you assume, yeah. then it sends messages back to your brain that you're okay, yeah. and it actually does you start, affect your Yeah, mood. you may be right. And also, yeah, that's like the actor's breathing thing and all that stuff. Eventually, you start breathing slower. It's almost like if you work out and you're like, you're yeah. breathing really fast, and you go, hey, idiot, breathe slower. And you start breathing slower, then all of a sudden you start relaxing, and you're not as exhausted as you were. Yeah. Stupid stuff like that. So what? Uh, so what do you have? Uh, what do you have coming out? What I well, so what I'm I'm out promoting is I, I so when I when I wanted to do this rock opera thing, I thought again, just like every every opportunity that I have where I get paid to do it, I consider that to possibly be my last one. Like they're they're going to be on to me, and it's going to stop. So if I'm going to do a rock opera, I want to do it right. I want to get. I want to get a 50-piece orchestra to play with me. So I talked to Bear McCreary, who does the music. He it just wanted for Walking Dead. Walking Dead, yeah. yes. And he just won an Emmy for Da Vinci's Demons, I think. And he did Battlestar Galactica. And he also does Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So he's a super talented guy. And he and I met, and he was a fan of the music of Death Clock uh, on the show. And so he was asking me like how I arrange guitars and all kinds of stuff like that. And I'd listen to his stuff. So we, were, we, and we ended up doing a benefit concert for like an AIDS benefit on Freddie Mercury's the anniversary of his death like two years ago at the Roxy and we had three guitarists and 11 vocalists and we did all of our favorite songs and we I had the best seat in the house because I had two great guitar players with me on either side and we were doing these three-part harmonies that you hear from like Flash Gordon to everything that you've ever wanted to do um good old-fashioned lover boy, just amazing solos and all that stuff. And we're, I'm sitting in between these two loud amps going, this is what it must have... Brian May never got to do this because he was only one guitarist live, so we wanted it to sound like the record. And that was our whole thing, and it sounded so great. And we don't get to do it that often because everyone does everything for free if it's a benefit, but if it's not a benefit, no one can afford that many musicians <laughs> on stage. So... Um, so I said, hey, listen, I, uh, I want to find out how much this costs. I wanted to, do you have like a budget breakdown? And Bear McCreary has like a whole team of people. And he goes, well, if you want X amount, it's going to cost this much. If you want this, it's going to cost that much. And he gave me these different demarcation points of, and I finally said, okay, I think if I'm going to do this, I'm going to put out a record. And I think the network's kind of like finances would only cover a small amount. So I think I'm going to pay for a lot of this stuff myself because I want the experience. Even if it goes tits up, I'll learn something. And it's, and it's going to sound really good. And if I ever want to get into film scoring or anything, I'll have this whole reel of stuff. But ultimately, I think it's going to be cool and worth it. So I decided to get together with him, and, and he uh, arranged. Uh, he took my ideas and made them way cooler and gave some voices to different instruments where I had them on like different land French horns doing something and put something in the cello instead. Oh, wow. But I have the whole score there and it was really cool to see how he worked and he's just an amazing professional, easy to work with and works really quickly and does insanely good stuff. So, um, so that was a really cool thing to do. Um, and, then, uh, and then, yeah, to evolve these other vocalists too. His wife sang on it, Bear, uh, Bear's wife, Rhea. And she has an amazing voice. So any of the female vocals you hear on the Doomstar Requiem, which is what it's called, <laughs> a clock opera. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> 
you'll hear her. And then, I, like I said, we had these other cool people like Jack Black came up and sang a few things, and he was great. Uh, so easy to work with, and just a per, like great pitch, just amazing pitch, and does not yeah. mess around. Or he's just good and powerful. Um, and then, yeah, Cannibal Corpse, George Corpse Grinder Fisher came and sang. You can hear it when it's him. It's scary, it's extra scary sounding. And that's that was the idea. So I thought I'm going to put out this this special because it only airs once, really. And then I'll air it a few other times. But this music has to be really cool, and I have to like it a lot. And I get to add all these different kinds of elements of music, not just metal, because the way I thought about it, which is the way I think about the music on the show, is there only can be one metal moment if it's like wall-to-wall crazy, like, you know, loud and dark, you know, you're doing that the whole time, your ears are just going to tune out, you know, even though it's loud and crazy. So you have to counterbalance that with really quiet moments and kind of symphonic stuff and whatever. So I figured that that's what I'm going to do with this. I'm going to have start off with this big epic fanfare and then go into rock and further into metal and then contradict every other song stylistically to keep your ear alert and to want to go back and listen and to hear the story and all that stuff. So that's available? That's, that's now available on iTunes and, um, and on my website, brendansmall.com. And, uh, and there's a libretto that you can download and follow along with. So it's the whole story. It's basically the script of the, of the whole thing that... Uh, um, and uh, you can check that out, and there's like a featurette with me working with all the actors, like Malcolm McDowell and all that stuff, and getting them to sing and finding uh, their pitches and all that stuff. It was pretty funny, yeah. And Mark Hamill's in it, too. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, pretty awesome. So what do you think is the... Well, and you're going to play a couple things. I can, I can play them on guitar, or, we, or you can play some tracks of this stuff if you want to. We'll Either or. Out. Yeah. Kyle, I have to send you on an errand. Yes. Um, my meter's about to expire. Do you know where... You, so I'll tell you where to go. Just uh, turn right out of here, go past the DMV up Formosa, and it's the first like street. With the meters on it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I'm on the other side of the street. Just max it out. John and I totally have tickets. Max it uh, out. Thirty thousand dollars. Thirty grand. No. <laughs> that's like your spot then. Yeah, it's yeah. my fucking spot. There's right. a yeah, you lefty a sixty-three strat at uh, Guitar Center. It's twenty-three thousand. Guitar Center. There won't be prices like this until next Tuesday. Um, yeah, you know what? Do you, do you have a way to play tracks on the show? We can drop them in after. Yeah, that's what I figured. Maybe I'll set up a couple things for sure. you to check out. That'd be great. And uh, I can play you like a riff of one of the songs. Uh... But it was it was a fun process because I had the idea for this this thing, and it is a story. You have to go story first, you know. You can't just start writing the music. You have to like have the story mapped out. So I got together with um, two other writers, Janine DeTulio, who used to write on uh, oh, yeah. on uh, Conan back in the day, and then she was on Home Movies as a voice actor, and she's just a really great writer, just a great structure person and stuff. And then Mark Brooks, who's been a writer and director on the show f- for a long time, and we sat in um, we sat in a room just the three of us, and uh, I just kind of pitched this whole thing, you know, and I knew what the top of it was, I knew what this big section was, with the, uh, this, there's a big flashback in the, in the thing, and I'll, and I'll probably set that up. Um, actually, I am setting it up. Are you guys still recording and all that stuff? Yeah. You still recording? Yeah. So the whole thing started with this idea that, this story is, is a rescue story. That's the whole thing. It's this big kind of, like, I wanted to take a, we, we left the last season with the abduction of a guitarist and a love interest of the lead singer. And um, what I wanted to do is have a, a kind of an action, like a, it's a hero's journey very much, like every single thing is completely based off of the, 
Joseph Campbell stuff, like his outline. It's a three-act thing, and um, and uh, you know, it's about it's it's basically in the in the hero's journey. The hero gets the call, and then you know you get you set up status quo, and you get the call, which is, means like the in, invitation into the adventure, and then the hero has to negate that and say no I'm not I'm not ready my life is fine and then he has to go to a point of no return where he has it's like in Star Wars Luke wants to be a hangout in Dagobah then he goes home and he sees his family's been burned and so he has no choice but to follow him so we have that all that stuff but um, what I wanted to do was add this other part where we went to a flashback of how the abducted guitarist actually got into the band in the first place and that's where I decided wouldn't it be cool if I had like a two minute long guitar solo Somewhere in the middle of a TV special. I haven't seen that before. <laughs> but it has to be cool, and the stakes have to keep raising every kind of moment of, of, this, uh, of this duel. And what happens is the lead guitarist makes a deal with the band because their ex-guitarist just quit. Back, and this isn't a flashback. Their ex-guitarist just quit, and, uh, and they need, the band's like, well, we've got to replace them so we can make our first record. And uh, he says, I'll make you a deal. If, if see all these like 300, 2,000 whatever auditioners out here, if I can beat them all, then I'm gonna be, oh, let's be a one guitar band like Deep Purple or something like that. I don't wanna, I don't need a second guitar. I don't need that to compete with somebody else's ego. Let's make this one guitar band. And they say fine, so they make a deal and there's a song where he just beats all these guitarists. And finally, the young guitar player shows up late and sings a song. <laughs> about being from Norway and, <laughs> and he got lost along the way and he has like a little fanny pack and a guitar like, like he must have sewn himself a guitar gig bag you know that has like Norwegian kind of like decoration on it and stuff and his guitar is covered in duct tape and it's been dropped like a thousand times he's been living on the streets and the guitar says alright fine I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let you you know your time has come and gone but you seem like a nice guy it's a shame you have to go down this way get ready let's play and we have this big kind of tete-a-tete between guitars. And uh, that's a song called The Duel. So if you want to cue that up. Do we know? Yeah. Yeah, so you'll have that. But it's a, it's a really fun piece. And visually, it's a really cool thing because you have to advance every piece of music visually, too. You have to raise the stakes with everything as it keeps going. And uh, the guitarist blows the last note. He does everything perfectly except for the last note. And then uh, the guitarist hires him anyway because he says, no one's made me. No one's challenged me in that way before. So it's a fun... So I started out with that first. I thought, wouldn't it be cool to see... In, this, in the show, these two guitars, one of them is always shitting on the other guitars, but you don't realize that he's the one that hired him the whole time. So, so it was a nice little thing. There's a lot of like, emotional what points is this, in this what stuff. What does this mean? Well, what time do they come in? They're coming in at 3.30. Oh, 3.30? Yeah. Like two minutes, 3.30? Uh, yeah, in a couple minutes. And, oh. that's the sh- and that's the idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's a riff from, uh, from uh, the beginning of the flashback. So you'll hear that. There's a lot of Metallica, old Metallica in yeah. it. And that's the kind of the, of the idea is to go a little bit old school with that stuff. Well, now that we, uh, now that we realize there's someone else coming into the rehearsal space at yes. Swing House, I'll tell you what. Will you, uh, can you just give us a, um, some type of death clock uh, Enjoy Your Burrito song at the end? Absolutely. Okay. Enjoy Your Burrito. Okay. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank, Thank you, guys. Disbanded. One of them was taken. We look to the skies to watch a new star awaken. Oh, the doom star is born. Oh, the deadly light. And the star will turn to blood on this prophet's night. And the prophecy has warned us that one of us must die. Before this is all over, one of us must die. Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito.
This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.